Hello everyone, it's Zoltan and Jet here. Hey! Welcome to another episode of the SSHS Sciencecast. Our special guest today is Melissa Staines from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Queensland. She's a marine biologist who specialises in turtle biology, and we're going to be asking her plenty of questions today. Let's give her a call now. Hello? Hello. Hi, Melissa. Hi. Uh, I'm Zoltan. <laughs> I'm Jet. That's me. How are you today? I'm doing good. How are you guys? Good. Where are you right now? Uh, I'm working from home. Normally, I would be at my office at uni, but they've basically kept it um, so that everyone's working from home for the past. Well, since March, so in like four months. Okay, well, we're going to be asking you some questions today. So let's start off with what does a sea turtle biologist do? Okay, so uh, generally, I guess sea turtle biologists, they want to know more about sea turtle biology. So what they're going to do is uh, investigate uh, life cycles and life history. So life history is basically the different stages from hatchling to juvenile to sub-adult, and then adult. And each of those life stages are different time lengths. So normally it's like hatchling for about a year. Juveniles can be as long as anywhere from a year to 20 years. And then sub-adult for green turtles is around 15 to 30 years. And it's not really until they're about 30 years old when they actually reach sexual maturity. And then in the space of sea turtle conservation, People work in all different aspects of discovering different parts about sea turtles. So I work specifically more to do with the embryo phase, like when they're developing in the sand as little eggs. But he's people work on the feeding habits of sea turtles, the importance of sea turtles for coral reefs, and yeah, those, those kinds of topics. Can I ask if there's anything specifically that you do and if there's anything that's left to figure out about sea turtles? <laughs> yeah, sure. So... Um, one of the questions that I'm asking is basically how sea turtles are being affected by climate change. So the temperature of the sand depicts the sex of the baby turtle as it's in the egg. And we're worried that with climate change, we might see as much as a two or even four degree increase in air temperature. And that'll be translated into the sand as well. So sea turtles may only be producing female hatchlings if the sand becomes too warm. So I'm basically investigating, is this already happening in nesting beaches around Australia um, and also in the Asia-Pacific area? And then what can we actually do to fix it as well? So are there ways that we can cool down the sand with shade or watering? And that's basically what I've been focusing on throughout my... I did some projects through my undergrad and then some postgraduate study and then now in my PhD as well. Okay, well, can you tell us a little about a bit about how we can actually stop the increase of temperature and how we can stop the increase of the female over male uh, sea turtles? Yeah, sure. So I'll explain a little bit more about um, how it works. So sea turtles are different to mammals. So when uh, we're born, we're born with X, an XX chromosome for female or an XY chromosome for males. And they're given, those two chromosomes are given by your mum and your dad. So sea turtles, they still have to breed like a normal animal would, but they don't get sex chromosomes from their mum and their dad. They're kind of given blanks. And then basically when they're in the sand, uh, as the sand temperature, uh, whatever sand temperature it is, will trigger kind of like a hormone 
um, cascade of effects and it'll either produce male hormones, which is like testosterone, or female hormones like estrogen. And if the temperature is too warm, it'll produce more estrogen. If it's too cool, it'll produce more testosterone to make males. So the kind of the way, good way to remember it is hot chicks and cool dudes. <laughs> you know, struggle to remember which way around it is. And basically, we want to try and get a sand temperature that's around 29 degrees because at 29 degrees, we get a 50-50 split of males and females in a single nest or a clutch of eggs. Um, and then there's normally about a degree or two around 29 degrees where we get both males and females. So we want to try and keep it as healthy like um, and balanced as possible. So we know that rainfall actually decreases sand temperature really, really well because it stays overcast with the clouds and blocks out the sunlight. And also we have cool like rain that has fallen from the atmosphere and then down into the sand to reduce sand temperature. So uh, that's really good at uh, buffering against the really hot sand temperatures where sea turtles are nesting because sea turtles don't really nest any further south than Queensland on the east coast. Um, So it can get really, really warm. And essentially uh, by applying water either through rain or we've done it artificially using just watering cans or you could use like an irrigation system to try and cool down the sand, you can try and get down to that optimal range between 28 and 30 degrees where you can get both males and females to be produced. And the reason why we want to do this is because for really big green turtle populations in Australia, for instance, in the northern Great Barrier Reef, um, they've been producing cotches where 99% of the hatchlings are female. And that's really scary because in 30 years' time, when those little hatchlings get to adulthood, if 99% of them are female, there's only one male around. And I don't know how much you guys know about genetics, but it'll basically push the mole through a bottleneck. And if that male has really bad genes for something, like maybe he's blind or something, then all those hatchlings will be blind. And you can basically get a bunch of really bad mutations that will could potentially um, cause the population to collapse. So we don't want that to happen. We want to have plenty of males available for all the females in 30 years' time. So that's why we have to work really hard now to try and combat the effects of climate change that we're experiencing. Oh, either way, what a lucky guy. That must, that yeah. last line total must be. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. Hey, so, ma- so a female can mate with multiple males and a male can mate with multiple females. But it's more likely that the boys are mating with more girls than the girls are mating with boys. <laughs> you mentioned earlier um, artificial cooling through like uh, – mm-hmm. uh, Water, basically. Would you suggest suggest that um, salting of cl- rain clouds would be a solution? Oh, uh, so um, do you mean like what they did in the Great Barrier Reef earlier this year? They kind of made fake clouds? Is that yeah. what you're talking about? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Clouds. yeah. Yeah, that's a really good idea. It's definitely something that could be looked into. I know they were doing that because they want to try and prevent coral bleaching, but it also could work um, – for the benefit of the turtles as well if it's going to reduce sand temperature. So it's definitely a possibility. Obviously, those really large-scale manipulations of the environment are really tricky to get over with, like, in terms of, like, is it ethical to do that to the environment? It's difficult to get the balance right, yeah. Yeah, exactly, because I'm sure you guys have probably heard the story about cane toads when humans tried to interfere with 
um, the fact that cane was being eaten by these things called cane beetles. Uh, they brought over um, a bullfrog from Africa called what we call now the cane toad. And essentially, they didn't eat the cane beetles. They just went wild and rampant. And now they're covering most of Australia, eating all of our native wildlife. So you have to be really, really careful if you're going to make uh, large-scale manipulation to the environment because it could actually end up making the situation worse. So we have to be really careful about what we do. <laughs> okay. So could you tell us a little about the a little bit about the survival rate of baby turtles and is it decreasing? Okay. So um, back in the 1970s, there was a researcher and he's still um, around and kicking today. He does his research. He's named Cole Limpus. And he tagged uh, 500,000 hatchlings um, along with some other researchers for about a decade um, off Monroe Beach in Queensland. And the way that he did that is he just made like a small cut in the sides of the shell of the turtle, which is called carapace. And those cuts stay in the turtle for life. It doesn't affect the turtle in any negative way, but it's a way to mark the turtle from a tiny little hatchling all the way into adulthood. And the reason why he wanted to do that was because no one had ever been able to follow a small, tiny little hatchling all the way until it was a breeding adult. And that's because they travel all the way around the Pacific Ocean. So loggerheads as little hatchlings, they go down the East Australian current like Nemo and um, Crush did. Mm. And then when they get to New Zealand, they bang a left and go across the Pacific Ocean over to Chile in South America. And then they stay there while they're young adults. And then they come back as sub-adults and pick a feeding ground for life. And then when they're 30 years old, they come back to nest, hopefully on the same beach that they hatched from, but sometimes within... 100 kilometers of that. And so basically it took, I think, 25 or 28 years until Cole Olympus had his first hatchling return with these special markings um, that told him that that hatchling was born on this beach. And that was the only way that they knew that. And he managed to figure out that, or oh, if he tagged 500,000 hatchlings, he's only had about 25 turtles return. Wow. So wow. it's something like, yeah, it's something like in the realm of one in a thousand. So wait, wait, wait. Do they always return to the same beach? Is it like always? Do they always? No. Oh, most. So the so the reason why they return to the same beach or region is because they have this thing called imprinting, and uh, things like salmon and stuff like do that as well. It's basically like this really innate dinosaur behavior that they have. Um, in their brain and essentially when they hatch they have these tiny little magnetic particles floating around in the fluid in their brain and the earth's magnetic field has obviously like a pull towards it and those little particles face this particular direction and the turtle's brain imprints to that direction so he always knows he or she always knows where they are on the surface of the planet regardless of whether or not they've been blindfolded the whole time or put into a a metal box that blocks the magnetic field and then you drop them off somewhere in the ocean, they'll always find their way back home. So it's really, really cool. Um, and essentially it's, it's a rough, like it's about 100 kilometers off the mark of where they nest, but they probably use other cues like the color of the sand as they're swimming up to the beach. I or can the remember sound that? Of the, Yeah. 
there. So it's it's more it's called imprinting. So it's, they're relying less on their memory and more of like an instinct. So you don't really have to think about walking. That's an instinct. So it's something that they don't even have to think about. It's just their brain is telling them to do it. It's really strange. <laughs> So yeah, back back to the survival. One in a thousand is the like reported number that one in every one thousand hatchlings will make it to adulthood, as in a breeding age. Um, they don't know how old turtles actually live for because no one's ever followed one from the youngest hatchling to the oldest dying adult. <laughs> so I think the current age of the hatchlings that have been notched are around sixty years old. But we know that turtles can definitely live for longer than that because we've seen really old turtles. We just didn't know how old they are. But, yeah, the survival is likely very, very low for the first, like, 48 hours of their life because they have to travel across the reef. And the reef is what they call, like, a sea of mouths because <laughs> there's mouth. fish and sharks and there's also flying birds and crocodiles in Australia. Um so yeah, it's a pretty treacherous journey for them just to get over the reef. And then once they get over the reef, then they have to worry about food. So their little yolk sac they, they have inside their belly um, is the same yolk that they were given as an egg. And it's kind of like been absorbed into their body. But that little lunch pack of theirs will only make them survive for about a week. And then after that, they have to start looking for food. And because they're a tiny little hashling in the huge ocean, they don't really have the ability to, to go out and actively search for it. They kind of just have to wait for it to come along. So there's a pretty good chance that they might starve if they're in a really poor food environment. Brutal. And then obviously survival rates are affected by things like humans. So yeah. bycatch yeah. and plastic and all those other horrible things. Uh, so our class has a few questions. Uh, one yeah, of them sure. is what's your favorite part of the job? What's my favorite part? Field work. <laughs> so, yeah, because I don't really, I field work is a very small part of a researcher's life. Generally, we only get to spend about like 5 or 10% of our working life in the field, but it's the best part because it's the reason like why you got into the job in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> like I love sea turtles. I want to spend more time with them <laughs> and it's just unfortunate that we don't get to spend every single day with them. Um, but yeah, definitely out in the field would be my favorite part. And, um, specifically we do, um, things like research rodeos in Australia and I got a chance to do some over in Papua New Guinea as well, um, on a little conservation project and they're really fun. Um, essentially you just, you're in a boat and, uh, we drive up to where the sea turtles are swimming around in the reef area and you have to jump from the boat into the water and catch this little turtle jump on it and the reason why we do that is because we tag the turtles so that we can follow them for their entire life and so if we're able to catch the juvenile turtles when they first come to the reef after the big ocean journey well then we might be able to follow that individual juvenile all the way until they're an adult we should have asked this earlier but another of our class's questions is um you mentioned uh drilling into the carabus uh cutting into the carabus of the uh turtle what's it made from Okay, so the carapace itself is made from keratin and uh, essentially the keratin is excreted by the bone. So a turtle's shell is actually its rib cage that's been fused together, so it's all bone. And the, where it's been fused together, it's um, like there's no gaps or anything. And 
the it's very porous and those pores will secrete keratin and that keratin is very similar to the fingernails and like and hair, hair follicles. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why it's also coloured really pretty as well. And uh, as the turtle grows, it basically grows its shell in layers. And so each of the top layers will shed off as it gets a little bit bigger. Um, And that's how they're also able to um, change colours as they get older. So hatchlings are like a black-grey colour if you're looking at green turtles, for instance. And then they go to a bright orange colour as juveniles. And then they turn like a dark brown or gray. And then as full-grown adults, they tend to be like a greenish-gray color and they have more speckle patterns rather than like a sunburst pattern. Yeah. But yeah, that that keratin shell is really highly valuable for um, hawksbill turtles. They're actually poached overseas in places like Papua New Guinea and Malaysia. Mm. And uh, their shells are basically just cut off their body and made into things like jewelry because it's really pliable and bendable and they make jewelry out of it and artwork and then sell it to tourists and stuff like that so if anybody yeah. is ever visiting places that are overseas um, support the industry. and stuff yeah. like that yeah don't don't try and buy it and even if you think that it might be plastic it's probably just worth not buying it <laughs> there's plenty of other things that you can buy as souvenirs and just take photos and that kind of stuff right yeah, yeah. Uh, so another question from our class is, what's the oldest living marine creature you've encountered, encountered or what was the oldest turtle? Yeah, because you mentioned earlier that like they haven't found out what the oldest turtle is, so that'll be interesting. Yeah, so you know, you know how on uh, Nemo, how they say that Crush is 150 years old? Yeah. <laughs> it Not might true. be a bit of a stretch because, yeah. Right. Uh, like they definitely, it could definitely be possible that a turtle could maybe live to 150 because I know Land tortoises, turtles, yeah. like Galapagos tortoises yeah. have lived for over 200, 200 years or something. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> if you found a really big old green turtle, it could be easily over 100 years old. We just don't know for sure. Like there's no way to date the turtle. So if, no carbon if it's dating the or... oldest, yeah, no, they, that doesn't work either. <laughs> what about that thing you mentioned <laughs> earlier with the, the scratches? Couldn't you have, no? Scratches. Yeah, you said the uh, the um, the biologist he scratched he carved. Oh into... yeah, yeah. So he cut he cut little um they cut little. It's kind of like a I'm trying to think like a hole punch on the to the side of the shell. So not where there's any organs or bone or anything. Just the edges of the shell is just keratin, so it doesn't hurt the animal. Um, and then she grows up. He or she grows up, and there's no impediment. But because that study was only done in like the 1970s. It's still not the oldest age, potential age for a sea turtle to live. We've had turtles that have died at 60 years old because we knew that that was their age, but it wasn't a natural death. They got hit by a boat or something. So we still don't know for sure. It's either going to be the oldest animal I've ever met. is either going to be a turtle or maybe even a humpback whale because whales can live for a really long time yeah. as well. I'm actually quite interested in a career in marine biology myself, um, and I've got a few questions for you. Um, yeah, cool. Would like subject selection? How is that important to a career? So I know people that are in the marine conservation world that didn't even go to university, but they're very involved in, for instance, like photography and making um, documentaries and all that kind of stuff. So that's the route that they went down. So if you're more interested in that kind of stuff, I definitely think you don't have to go to university, but 
the benefit that I really found from university is that it, I didn't go knowing fully sure what I was going to do. Like I didn't sign up for a Bachelor of Science, which is what I did at, UK, at the University of Queensland, mm. um, knowing fully well that I was going to follow through with marine science. I didn't know if I wanted to do zoology or ecology or something similar to it. Um, but what I did in high school was I did advanced English and advanced maths. Um, you need probably need maths to get into a science degree. Um, I did biology, definitely. <laughs> um, I did chemistry because chemistry is definitely used in, in a lot of things like to understand the way that cells function. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I also did uh, I did visual arts because I enjoyed <laughs> art at school. Uh, but then I also did a extracurriculum uh, subject, which was through TAFE um, in seafood and industry. <laughs> and that was really beneficial. So I only did five uh, courses that contributed to my HSC mark and then an extra TAFE subject as well, just to kind of dabble and see if I was going to be interested in doing marine fish stuff. Um, and I really enjoyed that. But I also, my high school as well um, also offered a marine science class in year 10. So ah, I really okay. liked that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. Um, one more question from me before we get back to Jet. Um, were you interested in any other specialization apart from being a turtle biologist or is that the only thing on your mind? Actually, when I did my year 10 subject um, in marine, I thought I was going to go and be a biology teacher because I really liked my biology teacher and my marine teacher. And I thought, oh, wow, they have, they have such cool lives. Like, I really like <laughs> uh, I Same. learning. Same. Yeah, I really, I really love learning and I'm sure I'll really enjoy teaching as well. So I thought I was going to do a Bachelor of Science and then potentially a teaching degree after that. All right. But um, it was in my second year when I got the opportunity to do a research project at Monropo in Queensland, which is where Colympus works. And um, that basically... (laughs) No, 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 not Poland. Monropo. So it's M-O-N-R-E-P-O-S. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a, um, it's one of the only turtle nesting beaches on the East Coast where that you can go and see turtles um, nesting with a parks tour guide and it's really safe and it's good for the turtles like there's no um, negative interactions or anything Mm. so if you guys ever get the opportunity in the future once the borders are all open and stuff to go to Queensland and you want to see turtles yeah it's near Bundaberg so um, yeah I got that opportunity and it took uh, the research project went for about three months so it was a really good opportunity for me to dabble in research and that's basically how I found out that I wanted to be a researcher and not a teacher (laughs) Another question from our class is, uh, how long have you been in this line of work for? So, when the, I did that research project in 2017, so, so three years, and I've got another more three years of my PhD, so <laughs> it'll be still a while yet. And then once Six you finish your PhD, um, you kind of set free to do what you wish. You do other things called a postdoctorate, and it's basically just, um, building a portfolio of research projects that you're involved in. And it doesn't have to be specifically on turtles, but you're less likely to be employed by a university if you have no background in that specific research that they're advertising. So, yeah, I'm going to be working with drones, so, you know, like aerial survey drones. um, That's cool. uh, What are they called? Like UAVs. 
UAVs. Quadcopters. Yeah, so I'm going to get my license for that um, hopefully next month because I'm doing surveys around the Great Barrier Reef and monitoring sea turtles in their mating areas and things like that. So that's all really exciting and it's just another like, skill that I get to put under my belt. <laughs> okay. Uh, another question from the class is how many different species of turtle do you work with? So I've worked with, I worked with loggerheads at Monrepo. And then for my honours, which is uh, a year of research that you can do after university, um, I worked with green turtles and hawksbill turtles. And now my PhD, I'm still working with greens and hawksbills, more so for green turtles though, like I'm more invested in green turtles. But I have also worked with flatback sea turtles, which are, they're endemic to Australia, so they only nest in Australia, they nest nowhere else in the world. Um, but my dream would one day to be um, in the presence of a leatherback turtle. They're really cool. They're like tanks. Yeah. <laughs> They're massive. They're just really awesome creatures. Uh, and just to um, be in the presence of one would be really awesome. I think one, one last question from us. Uh, I think I speak for the whole class. Um, what's it take to be a marine biologist like yourself? What, what do you need? Oh, passion probably would be the number one thing. I think it's really hard to do anything if you haven't got the passion yeah. for it. Mm. So, for instance, um, when I was 16, I went and got my scuba diving certificate because I I did, still didn't know whether or not I wanted to be a marine biologist, but I figured marine biologists pretty much only do diving, right? So I better yeah. go get my diving certificate. I'm going for my holidays. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully you have a better time than me because <laughs> I, I got my certificate, but I ended up um, bursting my sinus underwater oh. while I was scuba diving. Yeah, and I did a lot of like damage to my sinuses. So oh. I had to get an operation to get it fixed. And I thought after that, like I kind of wouldn't be able to be a marine biologist. Um, because it. what other jobs are there in marine biology other than, you know, like a fisheries scientist that just does statistics or something at, for the government? But that's not true at all. You can do so much with um, marine science. You can do. GIS, so like mapping coral reefs, um, oceanic currents. Um, people do paleo science uh, for coral reefs, and um, which is basically looking through time to see mm. how climate change might have affected marine systems. Um, biology, ecology. You could do coastal management as well, so that you can work with local government and um, minimise runoff into the rivers and bays and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's heaps of things that you can get involved with. It just depends more so on your experiences. So when I was, before I um, did that initial research project in my second year of university, I actually did volunteer at the turtle rookery for a week. And I think that experience itself was enough to convince me that I wanted to pursue with turtles and research and that's why I applied for the research project afterwards. So if you're interested in doing marine science, I would really recommend um, trying to do volunteering projects. If you can find even ones that are maybe in a local um, organization that might clean up beaches and stuff like that, but also be monitoring the health of coral or health of kelp or something like that, you can potentially find stuff, especially if you're in high school as well. Um, that's probably one of the best times to get your experience as well and during school holidays and stuff like that. Thank you. Look into it. Okay. Yeah, that's okay.
Well, it was really great having you here and having a chat with me and Dolly today, Melissa. Um, it was really okay. interesting to see what you do and uh, what yeah, we could do potentially. Yeah, or what we could do. Yeah, it's, it was yeah, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. Well, cool. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for the interview. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today on the South Sydney Sciencecast. Thanks to Mr. Spencer, our marine teacher. Thank you to Mr. Benson for editing. And a big thanks to Melissa Staines for joining me and Zolly today and having a chat. Catch you next time. <laughs>